The great solar winds breach back in 2020 prompted many agencies to improve their cybersecurity. Even the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency found it had to improve its own ability to detect threats. Since then, CISA has steadily added to its capabilities for keeping an eye on networks across the government. We get more now from the Homeland Security Department's Assistant Inspector General for Audits, Kristen Bernard. Ms. Bernard, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here to talk about CISA and the role they play as the lead agency for coordinating federal cybersecurity efforts. All right. And what were you specifically looking at in terms of CISA in this audit? Before I get into the scope of our review, I'd like to point out this was really an important area for my office to jump into as quickly as possible. You know, we've certainly audited CISA a number of times on a variety of topics, but timeliness for this review was really important because this was our opportunity to do a direct assessment of how CISA is fulfilling its cybersecurity role during a time of crisis. Um, you mentioned solar winds. The solar winds breach really highlighted the importance for CISA to effectively execute its mission for defending federal agencies against these cyber attacks. So we began this review around January 2022 to determine whether CISA was better positioned following solar winds to detect and respond to cyber events. And to answer your question specifically regarding what operations we looked at, that would be CISA's cyber threat detection and mitigation. So threat detection is analyzing the security environment to identify any malicious activity, and mitigation is obviously meant to control the sure. threat and minimize the impact. So was this basically the Einstein program or measures beyond that? No, this would not pertain to Einstein. So Einstein is a separate system that's overseen by a separate office. This is specifically looking at CISA's cybersecurity division, and that's one of the three divisions in CISA that focuses on collaboration with public and private entities. So it's all about um, visibility into the federal government's network and identifying any cyber threats and mitigating those threats. Okay. And what were your main findings? Our main findings were that CISA had really made some progress. They really jumped in when solar winds was discovered, but this was an unprecedented challenge for DHS. Here we have CISA, the lead government agency responsible for understanding and managing cyber risks, but the solar winds breach revealed that CISA was just not well equipped. So our findings were that they did not have adequate secure facilities for their personnel to exchange information. They didn't have adequate staffing. They did not have adequate backup communication means for when networks are down. And they had a number of very important automated technologies that were still in the development pre-implementation phase that could have really helped. It sounds like you caught an agency that had been moving from a policy, the old directorate, whatever its title was, to something much more operational. And back at that time when the solar winds came out, they weren't quite metamorphosized, if that's the right word, yet into the CISA. Perhaps they are much closer to being today. That's a great way to put it, yes. And it has been a struggle, I think, you know, since, I guess, five years ago when MPPD changed over to CISA, 
their responsibilities have steadily increased. And I think as any federal government agency, they've struggled to keep pace with staffing, technological capabilities. So yeah, SolarWinds really caught them at a time of still being largely in transition. So there's a lot of things that they can do to continue improving. Right. If anything, maybe the audit and the solar winds showed that that was the right course for them to be on if they would only continue on it toward fulfillment. Correct. We're speaking with Kristen Bernard. She's Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the Homeland Security Department. And you found that they have taken specific and concrete steps and made progress since that status at the solar winds time. Correct, Tom. And I think it's really all about staffing. I think the three primary things they need to focus on are continuing to fill their vacancies. At the time of our review, they were roughly a third understaffed. So that is very, very significant. And then also just continuing those technology capabilities so that they have better visibility on what's on federal government networks. They do that through their continuous diagnostics and mitigation program. And then they also have a number of tools, one being the malware next-gen analysis tool. Both of those efforts were still in development, so it's really about staying the course. They've received a lot of funding, a lot of additional authority to fulfill these roles, but these technologies will help maybe fill some of those gaps. And you mentioned secure facilities in which to exchange information. Have they beefed up that since then also? I believe so. We did make a recommendation for them to conduct an assessment for secure facilities to make sure that they are appropriately sized and configured to meet their operational needs. And I know that's something that they were already working on. Yeah, let's get to the recommendations. You had four, and they're fairly broad. And I'll start with, say, the fourth one. We recommend that CISA director create and implement a long-term plan for the cybersecurity division, the one we're talking about, to include provisions for ownership, operations, and maintenance of the National Cybersecurity Protection System's data analytics capabilities. That's a really a management more than a technology decision or a recommendation, Correct. Correct. That's specifically focused on the data analytics capability that they were working on, and that's going to go a long way to help them identify trends and critical vulnerabilities in a more timely manner. And your top recommendation, or number one, looked like something having to do with continuity of operations to make sure that they're there should something else happen, you know, like a solar winds. Correct. And also making sure that they have the means for communicating when their networks are down or when their networks are compromised. And then there's the recommendation that they require an assessment to document levels of staffing, resources, intelligence, access needed for operational divisions. That's the people question, and that's one that's probably never-ending, fair to say. It is fair to say. Like I mentioned, they just really haven't been able to keep pace They haven't been able to hire enough staff to execute their mission, and I think certainly that's partly due to the skills and expertise. It's hard for all federal agencies looking for cybersecurity professionals, but it's also, I think, just the rapid increase in their scope and their mission. It's just really continued to expand faster than hiring can take place. Right, and in their hiring in a very competitive area, maybe the most competitive area, is cybersecurity. And this strikes me as a report where the agency probably knew this already. What reaction did you get to the recommendations? 
Well, for staffing, I think their response to the staffing shortfalls are, it's really no different than what we hear from other oddities. And it's going back to the lengthy recruiting process and the lengthy federal hiring process. It generally can take anywhere from six to 12 months to hire employees and contractors, especially with hard to find cyber specific skill sets. So it's all about working in the federal space and the federal hiring space, but I know that they are also taking advantage of a lot of the cybersecurity direct hire programs as well. Yeah, that's something that a lot of agencies overlook is the hiring authorities they have already existing in the general personnel apparatus of the federal government. Right. This report is out then, and uh, otherwise they're kind of with you. What comes next? Well, what comes next is actually we are doing a similar look at CISA in conjunction with NSA. We're doing a joint audit to look at how the National Security Agency worked closely with CISA during solar winds, and we expect that report to be released sometime next winter. But as far as CISA, like we said, it's really staying the course, continuing working on staffing and completing these capabilities. Kristen Bernard is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the Homeland Security Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. This was a great opportunity to talk about this work. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.